Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Scholarship Corporation Radio Network. Heard worldwide on www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com. Your source for college recruiting help, training advice, motivation, and more from pro athletes, coaches, celebrities, and entrepreneurs worldwide. the Athletic Scholarship Corporation and the ASC Sports Radio Network, also found on the web at www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com. Today i got a special guest with a vast background. I'm really excited to talk to him on a personal and business level, J.B. Bernstein. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. How are you? I'm doing great. Uh, thanks for taking a few moments. I know you got a busy schedule. Just got back from the Hall of Fame. How was that trip? It was great. It was great. You know, uh, it's funny how... Um you know, business intrudes on on um, tradition all the time. So about half the Hall of Famers were out in Atlantic City because there was a card show where they could, you know, make money. And, of course, you know, look, the, the Hall of Fame can only afford to pay players so much to be there. It would be, it'd be great, but it, it's just one of those crazy things where you have guys their entire life – as a kid dreaming about making it to the Hall of Fame and then Hall of Fame weekend comes around and you're a Hall of Famer, a yellow jacket, and you go to Atlantic City to sign uh, autographs for fans for money. So that's pro- that probably sums up uh, what I was thinking all weekend going back and forth between Canton and Atlantic City. So it, it's it's a great stamp on the state of, of the business and also something that guys really want to think about um, whether you played in the 50s or whether you play now is it all ends at some point mm-hmm. and you have to really be prepared for that. Yeah, and that's great advice. And a little background for the listeners. Uh, JB is a sports agent, CEO, entrepreneur, you know, mar- lover of marketing, obviously, and, and notable clients are Barry Bonds, Barry Sanders, Emmett Smith, and then we have the Disney movie, The Million Dollar Arm, um, fill in those holes, or let's talk about a little bit about th- that background and that bio. If I miss anything, please fill it in. No, for sure. I mean, I'm. It's funny. I don't think of myself as an agent. I do think of myself <laughs> first and foremost as an entrepreneur. Uh, I started. I probably became an agent in the most unlikely way possible. I was uh, out of business school working for Procter and Gamble uh, in the laundry division. Uh, I was a brand manager on Ultra Downey nothing could be further from the world of sports than selling <laughs> fabric softener to women. And um, I had an opportunity. One of my business school professors teed me up with uh, the guys over at Upper Deck who were really forming their company, and I came in to be head of business development, and that's how I got into sports. And then in 94, um, when I left Upper Deck uh, to kind of pursue my own company and be a corporate consultant, and that was really my thought, started getting calls from some of the athletes that I had worked with, specifically starting with Barry Sanders saying, hey, can you help me out with my marketing? Now you're not at Upper Deck anymore. And and slowly but surely, um, in addition to my corporate marketing business, I I became um, an athlete agent and started helping athletes with their careers. Uh, Started out just as branding and marketing and licensing and then merchandising and then sponsorships and then you know, now the digital age has come in and we have a huge digital business that supports athletes and their brands and mm-hmm. logos and you name it. So we really kind of dovetailed out into 
basically any service an athlete could want outside of financial planning. Um, I don't get involved in that. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, as you mentioned in 2007, my partners and I came up with the idea to go to India and look for a baseball pitcher. And it's funny because I think that's why you and I uh, have very similar thought processes. Uh, I had come to kind of a point in my career where it was frustrating, um, you know, representing some of the top guys of all time and sitting in front of a young kid who'd never played a down of football or never played an inning of professional baseball and, um, you know, them wanting me to give them money or, or benefits or, or to take care of things for them, you know, and, and it just didn't feel right. And it was something I was really depressed and really disillusioned with where the business had gone. And I know it wasn't the kids who really came up with these ideas. It was there were competitors of mine out there offering mm-hmm. these things. And it wasn't that we couldn't offer them. It's just that it didn't feel right. Um, it, first of all, it's a bad business decision to offer a kid a bunch of money. Mm-hmm. You don't know if he's going to get hurt. You don't know if he's going to get caught with a joint in his car or right, if he's right. going to be in a bad situation with one of his friends that could really ruin everything. So, so there was that. And then just ethically, it just didn't feel like that was the path I wanted to take to the finish line. Mm-hmm. So we decided to go to India and try to find some baseball pitchers, and, and it certainly took on a life of its own, more than we ever could have imagined. We found some guys, and you know Disney heard about the story and made a movie. So it's funny, with all the things that I've accomplished in my career, um, I'll probably never be known for anything other than that's the guy that John Hamm played in Million Dollar mm-hmm. Arm, but... It's not so bad, so I can't complain. <laughs> did Did you see that vision, or or see where you're at now when you're working in on the laundry pitch? You know, I think that I always knew I could market anything. You mm-hmm. know, I, I I always had a knack for marketing. Even as a kid, I had a lot of internships during college and business school, a lot of jobs, and you know, my friends were out going to sleepaway camp and doing all kinds of junk, and I was always working. And marketing was always something that um, I understood at a very deep level, and I have a good creative knack for it. And so um, the transition from laundry to sports, although I didn't foresee it, um, <laughs> it was gladly welcomed. And, and at, the, at the end of the day, there's really not that much difference between marketing a product than there is marketing an athlete. Um, you really need the same components, and, and ultimately you need to be able to build a brand. So whether it's you know April freshness or whether it's you know the ultimate in human performance, uh, there's a positioning, and then you build a brand around that. Well, when, when you talk about brand, and it's something that when I speak with ads and high school coaches and athletes and parents, and one of the things about brand, it's the equal of credibility, and what I try to coach and mentor and it transitions on your professional side is that the things you do, especially with social media and the things that you, you, you kind of project out there about you and your energy and who you are is going to stick with you for a long time. And, and I'm sure in that brand management, when you deal with professional athletes, you probably counsel them the same way, correct? Yeah. I mean, you know, look, it's crazy, but when you really think about a pro athlete, 99% of the people that are aware of that professional athlete. And this probably goes for all celebrities. Mm-hmm. But really, the vast, vast majority of the people who know of that celebrity know them through two things, their brand and the media. 
So those two pieces really make up what the majority of the world thinks of you as a celebrity or as an athlete. And I can't tell guys how important it is to have control of both of those things from the beginning. In a lot of ways, they go hand in hand, but your brand, you know, every product you put out, every appearance you do, every company you tie your name with, what you do with those companies. So it's not just how you, who you tie yourself to, it's how you execute, and then how the media covers you both on and off the field. And literally, that is how every fan on the planet sees you. So part of your branding nowadays, a big part of it is your social networking. Mm-hmm. And you have to be super careful because as a young kid, you know, you don't have to be an athlete. Most young kids don't really understand how something they do now could affect them 20 years in the future. And I think that that is something that's really important to understand at a young age. And the guys who are mature and the guys who really, and girls who really get that at this you know, tender age in high school and college and understand that if you want to be a pro athlete, this is a massive part of your success is how people view you through your brand and through the media. And I, and I think that that's important. Not many people are going to see you at the soup kitchen feeding people. Not mm-hmm. many people are going to see you going to church. Not many people are going to see you interact with your kid. You know, those private moments very rarely get the light of day. Um, but what they are going to see is the stuff you put out there. And it's so important for it to be cohesive and for it to be authentic and for it to be controlled in a way that people are getting the right um, impression of you. Yeah, and you lead into a good point that as an athlete, even not an athlete, when you when you deal with you know high school students going into the transition into the college life, a lot of these kids don't understand that the admittance counselors and missions and, and all this, these teachers are looking at their social media deciding is this who we want in our university, especially at the Ivy level. There's a high competition, limited seating, so that social media really drives not just athletes, but I think athletes – have forgotten, you know, when I played in the nineties, we were always taught that, you know, your name on the back means nothing. And you've got to carry yourself to a different standard. You're held accountable for every moment. And I think today, a lot of kids, there's just not that sense of sweat equity. There's a sense of entitlement. Do you see a difference? And we're in the same age bracket here. So do you, have you seen a difference develop on your end too, as far as Yeah, I mean, I think it's twofold. You know, you hit on the first point, which is there's definitely a difference in attitude. Um, But I think the difference in attitude is driven by the digital revolution. I mean, social networking Mm -hmm. in high school, you can sort of feel like you're a celebrity. When we were kids in high school, (laughs) you know, your local paper was the only person who reported on you, if that. No one knew you outside of a 10-mile radius of where you lived. You know, maybe you made it to a Nike camp. Certainly schools had to come find you, but, but the general public had no idea who you were. And even once you got into college, I mean, I look at Barry Sanders in 1988, Mm-hmm. For the Heisman, there was a lot of – that may be the greatest – and I'm somewhat biased, sure, but, I mean, there are very few people who would argue that that is one of the single greatest NCAA football performances for a season from any athlete ever. 
Um, mm-hmm. You know, he broke 39 records. I think 17 of them still stand from 1988. I mean, it, it, it's truly amazing, right? But even during that year, you know, it was really before ESPN was covering things the way they do now and, and obviously before the digital revolution and social media. And there was a lot of talk about how, who the hell is this guy? And, and you know, that could never happen. I mean, the guy putting up those kind of numbers now would be a national celebrity. I mean, LeBron James's games in high school were on TV, and mm-hmm. I think that that is something that you know most young kids are not prepared to handle. And it's real easy to buy your press clippings at that age. Right. And so I think the combination of you know the attitudes changing, but they're changing for a reason, and and it's really because there's an ability to become a celebrity that never really existed, you know, 20, 30 years ago. And in some ways it's great because it does shed light on talent, Um, but I also think it sheds light on young kids. And, and, you know, the one thing about kids is they're going to make mistakes and Mm -hmm. and it's going to put unnecessary pressure on them. I'm not a huge fan of that, um, but, you know, it's here, so... You have to really counsel kids to understand the same way our coaches made us understand. Hey, you're right. Yeah, it is the front of the jersey, not the back of the jersey. It's hard for a kid to say that when he's got as many followers as the coach or as many followers as the university. Mm-hmm. Um, or he's on TV uh, as a high school kid or you know, he, or he's got um, companies on campus at college talking to him saying, hey, when you come out, agents, when you come out, teams, when you come out. And and it all kind of fuels that fire. Um, but as you know, the reality is a very, very small percentage of these kids are going to actually become pros. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's something that um, I really think it's hard for a kid to understand because you're a celebrity pretty much your whole life growing up. You get to college, you're a celebrity, and then boom, you don't get drafted. Or you get drafted in the seventh round and get cut. And um, that's a hard crash, and I think that's the other part of this that no one really looks at is it's a tough light for the kids who make it. It's even tougher for the kids that don't because, I mean, their tent basically gets folded up the second that they don't get drafted. They, all their friends, oh, man, I thought you were going to be a pro. What happened to that oh, guy? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And they never stop talking. But people love to talk about a tragedy or negative. They don't really like to talk about all the positives and that's unfortunate, and social media kind of magnifies it. And that leads into a great conversation they had on Mike and Mike today. They were talking about the young man that decommitted from Harbaugh in Michigan because they sent him a thank you letter for or a card for going to a barbecue he didn't go to, and they spelled his name wrong, so he got upset and said, forget it, I'm decommitting. Obviously, it's a verbal commitment, which means nothing anymore, but he's now back on the block, and everybody's talking about it, and I'm scratching my head going, I would have never told a big school like that, forget it. I would have just said, they sent me the card in error. I wasn't there. So it's a, it's a different world. It really is. No no doubt. I, th- I mean, you know, and again, in some ways I commiserate with him because, you know, when you get recruited, you do want to feel special. I mean, you're being recruited by a lot of t- uh, colleges and you commit to one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as it turns out, they don't even know your name. And so that, and again, it's a clerical error. So guys like me and you are level-headed, but a young kid, I could definitely see how, you know, they've got a chip on their shoulder. They've got something to prove and they 
feel like they're a little bit bigger than they probably are. You know, I, I doubt Michigan's mourning the loss of the guy, but but the reality when you when you really look at it, um, it, it does that that same underlying theme of kids at a very young age feeling that light of celebrity. And then the, you know, some, and again, everybody responds to it differently. There, I have some athletes who would have been the exact same person they are today as a Hall of Famer as they would have been if they had been a fireman and never played sports. You know, they, they, the sport and the media and the celebrity and the money just doesn't change them. And then there are people who those things do change. And, and you know, it, it's sad to see. But that that's not something that is indigenous just to athletics or even movie stars. It's politicians. It's even really successful business people. Um, you know, I've seen guys who were entrepreneurs who worked their butt off and to create a company and create a brand, and, and they were these great, conscientious, really smart guys. And then all of a sudden they sell their company for a couple hundred million dollars and they think they're Einstein. And you say, you know, um, you're a smart guy. You did great, but you, you know, you're still the same guy. And and but you know, so money, power, fame. You know, there are people who are affected by it, and and it's sad to see it happen to a young kid, um, especially in such a fleeting industry like sports, where you're one injury away, where you've got such a short window one bad decision away. I mean, poor, you know, guys like uh, Johnny Manziel, uh. um, you know, who are just in permanent self-destruct mode. Or even, if, you know, and take guys who aren't even self-destructing. Look at guys like Charlie Ward or Tim Tebow. These are some of the most successful college athletes in the history of college football, and they just weren't good enough at the next level. And, and that's got to be tough. I mean, I remember the joke in New York growing up was that the best quarterback of the three uh, uh, in New York was playing for the Knicks, which was Charlie Ward. Because, <laughs> you know, because the Giants and the Jets really didn't have much. Right. And, um, but but the, the reality is there's a guy who I think uh, lost one game in his college career, had two undefeated seasons, a national championship, a Heisman Trophy, and, and went undrafted. Couldn't yeah. even get a tryout. Yeah. Uh, and and kids don't get that on the you know we always talk about it in the collegiate recruiting that the hashtag d1 bound syndrome or or the parents that mascot chase the the d1s and they overlook the d2s and d3s and what we're really about at athletic scholarship corporation is about trying to capture as much financial discounts grants athletic money whatever whatever angle or prong we can take to save on the cost of college is really what we're about but what's your best advice to that student athlete or that high school player or parent, you know, working with Barry Bonds, Barry Sanders, Emmett Smith, was it, you know, him intimately. So was it always easy for them or what's your best advice to that athlete about really putting in, investing into your craft and, and working from the bottom and working your way up? What's your best advice to those, those kids? I, I, so I'll tell you that there's one characteristic I see that, is always present in anybody who's ever been successful in any field, but especially in sports. And, and the characteristic is hunger. You have to be hungry, and it can't ever leave you. I remember, you know, in his 20 or 21st season, Bonds was a guy who was lifting weights 365 days a year. He would spend an hour watching film uh, of the of any opposing pitcher the day of the game, sitting there watching guys, watching their tendencies. They, you know, they, going back through his old at bats, 
Um, you know, Barry Sanders was a guy I remember after the, I think it was the '94 season. You know, he he had a co-MVP, I think, offensive MVP, rushed for like 1,800 yards, and he asked NFL Films for um, video of all of his runs to date because he had got caught from behind a few times that season, and he was and he wanted to fix that, and he looked at things like his ankle lift and his um, different uh, techniques within his running style. You know, nobody um, was more dedicated than Emmett. I mean, every year he would come up with something new, chiropractic, rolfing, fast twitch training, you know, and they never, ever rested on being the best. Whatever they were, their attitude was, if I'm the best, then I'm going to be better and redefine that and keep raising the bar and raising the bar. And it was this hunger not even to be the best, it was to challenge themselves to do the impossible. And, and, you know, it really permeates every aspect of your life. As a student athlete, um, the best possible outcome, obviously, is making the pros. The worst possible outcome is wasting the opportunity to get free education and not using and not getting that education. And, mm-hmm. and so I tell every student athlete, I say, I don't know whether or not you'll ever make the pros. Anything could happen. But somebody's paying for you to go to Stanford or go to SMU or go to uh, Harvard or go to Penn or whatever. And that degree is massively valuable as long as you don't waste your time at school. If you want to be a PE major and cruise through school, then that's fine. But if you don't make the pros, what are you going to do with that? And, And so it's such a precious opportunity in student athletics where you get this opportunity to get free education. And like we said at the beginning of this, 90-plus percent of these kids are never going to make the pros, but they all can graduate. That's within their grasp. It's completely within their control. And so ultimately, that's my advice is take the things that are within your control and, and make sure you don't miss out on those. You may get to the moon. You may get to be a pro athlete, but... The one thing I know for sure is you can be a college graduate, you can get a great education, you can get internships, you can use the alumni network to prepare yourself and get a good job in the event you don't make it to the pros. There's nothing wrong in life with a backup plan. Yeah, and I agree. And let's talk about, for a moment, dealing with adversity. And there's there's two, um, you know, two angles I want to talk about this. But the first, obviously, when you – kind of pioneered this this um million dollar arm contest reality tv how much feedback did you get back from people that wasn't positive a hundred percent i don't i don't i don't think there was anybody <laughs> on the planet who thought that this was a good idea other than me and my business partners um and, and you know what i don't necessarily blame those people because you know, they had not done the research we'd done, and they hadn't really thought about it the way we were thinking about it. And so, you know, they didn't see what we saw. And I think that that is an indicator a lot of times that you're on the right track when everybody else thinks it's a bad idea or it won't work because if everybody could see what you see, then everybody would be a visionary. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, we were lucky in that respect. But, I mean, you know, the two, the most important lesson of that is really – you know, no is not the end of the negotiation. It's the beginning. You know, um, when someone says no, what are they really saying to you? They're saying, hey, I've listened to your proposal. 
I, I, I'm, I'm in the market. I don't listen to proposals that I'm not in the market for. I just don't buy it. I don't. And right. So it's a natural springboard, no, to figure out, well, what can get you to a yes? And I think so many times people are discouraged uh, or take it personally uh, when they hear a no. But but to me, I guess I, I never really felt that way. And so, um, yeah, there was nobody on the planet that thought this was a good idea. And it's funny, though, the funny thing about success in my business or in any business, and this is not specific to Million Dollar Arm or even athletics, uh, you know, there are so many people who are naysayers. And then ultimately... Um, when you succeed, they're the first people to oh. get there and say, oh, I knew you could do it all. Yeah, yeah, they're I was all, always in your yeah, corner. They're all on board. And, and, and that's, that's human nature. I mean, people want to feel good about themselves. So it's a lot easier to denigrate someone who's trying to do something impossible or someone trying to do something spectacular because if that's possible – then what am I doing? Why am I, you know, how, I, I'm lazy. I'm not working as hard. I'm not willing to take the risk that this guy's willing to take. And, and I think that those are harder truths to swallow than denigrating someone who's trying to do something special. So I always think about it like that. When people are telling me no, I'm saying, I, what I hear them say is they're too lazy, too um, stuck in their ways, you know, just not not willing to do the work or take the risks that I'm willing to take in order to be successful. Now, you're in India and you got estimated 30,000 people actually, you kind of like the voice, tried tried their hand at pitching. Is that accurate? 30,000 people? Yeah, it was, just, it was about 38,000 oh, in my season. And um, we found 30 guys who were throwing over 80 miles an hour who'd never seen a baseball, never heard of the sport, had oh. bad mechanics, um, all, you know, in that 16 to 21-year-old range. And um, it, it was amazing to see um, so many guys with kind of that natural ability. But that was really our thesis was, you know, you got hundreds of millions of men in that age range. There's no collegiate athletics in India. Mm -hmm. So there's no athletic scholarships, mm -hmm. but so no one would know that there was any value to having a strong arm. That being said, it would be physically impossible with that many millions of men being born that somebody wouldn't be born with a strong arm. You know, we have literally thousands of athletes in our country who are born with those raw materials that out, out of a pool of what's called 15 or 20 million men in that age range. So when you have hundreds of millions of guys yeah. that aren't being recruited for anything, how could there possibly not be somebody born with that natural ability? So, so to us, it's funny. Um, you know, we weren't as surprised, but it certainly was hard to find guys, and and you know, um, the TV show and all this other stuff was, was a lot of um, extra work that. Um, made it made it very difficult than just going on a normal recruiting trip where you hear some kid is pitching great in in high school in Dubuque, Iowa, and you you go out there to see him. You know, it's uh, this was definitely a lot different than that. So it's really really out of the box, obviously. And listening to some interviews, you changed some lives there, but I kind of get the notion that your life was changed. Is this a championship moment in your life doing the the million dollar arm? It, it it definitely was a, a great moment of introspection, and, and mm -hmm. um, I think 
for me, before Million Dollar Arm, if you had asked me if I was happy, I would have told you I was miraculously happy. I had the exact career I wanted to have. I mm-hmm. was hugely successful. I was making a lot of money. Mm-hmm. I, I took a lot of pride in my success um, in business, but I, I was very myopic, very one-dimensional, and I was just all about business. You know, I traveled 300 days a year. I didn't have a family. Um, I didn't, you know, really have a, a pet, a plant, nothing. <laughs> you know, I just, I was basically a businessman. That was com- my complete being. And, and um, you know, through this, the, the Rinkley and Dinesh um, and my exposure to them and my exposure to India and then ultimately meeting Brenda, uh, my wife now, and, and it, it changed me on a fundamental level. You know, every deal changes you financially for the better or the worse. That's just how deals work. Every now and again, you can help some people by tying in some kind of community investment or charity to a deal, but but it's very rare you get a deal that changes you on a fundamental level, and I think that's what Million Dollar Arm did. It you know, made me a better agent mm-hmm. because I, I do think about the world differently now. Um, I've got my own child, Rinkland and Dinesh, I certainly consider them uh, family, and, and you remember a lot of the lessons you forgot along the way, you know, being able to take pride in someone else's accomplishments, you know, unconditional love and the power of that, the, the, the power of family and having people around you that are in your corner unconditionally, um, those are things that I had forgotten, and um, certainly now uh, I'm a different agent than I was before, even though I think I I wasn't necessarily ever a standard kind of cookie-cutter agent. Mm -hmm. Um, So, yeah, it's something that definitely changed me for the better um, as a person, as an agent, and, and as an agent for change. I always take a nugget away from any conversation, any meeting, anybody I cross has in life and it could be a janitor i remember talking to our janitor in college and, and i was playing college ball and and my teammates said well, why are you talking to that guy so long i said you know everybody's got experience and a story and i don't know where i learned that but it's been valuable and and it's ironic because one of the things i'm working on in my personal life is work-life balance i've always been a serial entrepreneur and and just work 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 and and i kind of looked at my wife and said i'm, I'm a bad husband right now because I'm not balancing things and I'm not taking care of my health. And so life's real short. I guess it's the best advice. But one of the nuggets I grabbed from you and, and doing some research before we talked is you made a comment that said your biggest commitment, and this is before now, obviously with your wife and your family, your biggest commitment was a dog. It, it, that kind of just stuck out when I heard that. It, it, so you're talking about at that point in your life, you were just really gun ho about business and and just that was your driving force back then. Yeah, the funny thing is, now, as I think about it in retrospect, you know, I, I had a full-time dog nanny, so I wasn't <laughs> even really committed to the dog. <laughs> I, I really was only ever committed to one thing, which was to business. I, at, at a very young age, I took a lot of pride in it. I was good at it, and, and you get that positive reinforcement. And in, in, in positive reinforcement and pride – are, are like drugs, like any other drug that you mm-hmm. become addicted to. And those were things that, you know, you, you, after a while, I didn't even care about the money. It was just about 
doing historical deals and having a client or a league or a company come back and say, that was amazing. You know, wow, how'd you think of that? And those were the type of compliments that, that I fed off of. I think, you know, the one thing I would, in my story, uh, should inspire kids to think about is, you know, you're going to spend your entire life running. You might as well be chasing your dreams. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you say life is short. It's just another way to say it is. This is an amazing country, despite all the craziness that's going on. And here in this election cycle, I think people, I'm not a very political guy, but I think people are losing hope and feeling like, um, you know, the, the country itself has lost its way. But, but Rinko and Dinesh, these two kids who didn't speak English, never heard of baseball, never did anything in their entire life that would indicate they were going to be a pro baseball player, had never traveled outside of their village, didn't speak the language, came to the United States, and within 13 months, not only were they both signed to minor league deals by the Pirates, but Rinku actually won a game in the minor leagues against guys who have been playing their entire life, 13 months from the day he stepped on, on American soil. And, you know, so... The lesson is that the American dream is still alive. You can do anything you want. There, there's literally no limit to what you can do if you're willing to make the sacrifices necessary to be successful. And that, that's, that's what I would hope people walk away with my, from my story is that success is in your hands. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to go out there and get it? Yeah, and the media kind of magnifies the – two percent of the real issues we have i.e barry bonds i mean you've dealt with it you lived through the storm with them um and finding out that it's inaccurate and the you know the legal issues disappear and the media drives a lot of things and it's unfortunate i mean there's positive to media outlets we need it digital media we need it but you know the negative stuff just seems to stick and how'd you how'd you deal with that situation and professionally i mean that definitely took some patience i'm sure you know, first and foremost, um, you know, you got to understand what the media is. Mm-hmm. You know, the media is a business. Mm-hmm. Like any other business, they're about selling product. So what's their product? On TV, it's viewership because mm-hmm. then they can get more money for their advertising and mm-hmm. printed circulation because they can get more money for their advertising. They don't sell you news. They, they sell advertising. So they'll print anything that gets them more viewership and more readers because that makes the only product they sell, which is advertising, more valuable. Right. So I never was a guy who, whether it was positive or negative, read my or anybody else's press clippings. Um, you know, I think that you're measured by what you do between the lines, how your teammates and coaches see you, and... Uh, for any player, not just Barry, for any player that comes under fire of the media or vice versa, players who are wrongfully created as media darlings because mm-hmm. they do a good job of dealing with the media. Mm-hmm. They might be terrible people, and, and you know, I'm not in the business of naming right. guys on either side of the fence. Right. But what I'll say is you got to first and foremost understand that the media is not in the business of giving you the news or the truth. They're in the business of selling ads. 
and they'll do anything like any business toward that end. You know, IBM will do anything to sell you computers. <laughs> they'll they'll go out and spend hundreds of millions of dollars to create whatever they need to create. They'll go out and make a big ad campaign. But at the end of the day, they want to sell you a computer for as much money as possible, and that that's true of any product. And and so um, there are guys out there who play the game of the media very well. They mm-hmm. they may not be the greatest guys, but the media puts them in that box. Uh, and and that's the other thing to understand is that the media has to have everything in these digestible bits, right? They have to put celebrities in boxes. So are you the villain? Or are you the hero? Are you the quiet guy? Are you a, uh, a, a um, braggadocious guy? I mean, there's there's all different kinds of ways. And even in that, small thing, you know, the media has got us thinking about a guy like Richard Sherman or Deion Sanders very differently than a guy who brags and um, it comes off in a way that they're jerks. And so, you know, no one would ever think Dion or Richard Sermon were jerks. They, they, these guys are amazing players and they're on the edge and, you know, and the media's created that box for them. But it's not that much different than guys who the media might consider loudmouths, who you know don't do much different in terms of the bragging and sticking the chest out and trash talking. Um, and it's in every sport, so that's just one small example of the same exact behavior being characterized differently. I don't think that Barry ever really cared about what the media thought. You, you know, he and I never actually even really talked much about it. Um, you know, I feel bad for any celebrity because you're under such an unfair microscope 24-7. If someone followed you or I around with a camera and a microphone uh, our be entire bad. life, <laughs> there'd be, mo- there, you know, there are moments that get captured. Uh, uh. And then through through the magic of editing, they can make it seem like that's the only thing you're about. You know, I remember, um, the, the, I'll leave you with this. I remember one moment that in time that, that really, really hurt me uh, from a media standpoint was Barry was out with a knee injury for most of the season. And this leukemia kid had been writing him saying, hey, if I can go into remission from leukemia, you know, you can come back. You're my favorite player. And, you know, Barry created a relationship with this kid and said, you know what? My first game back, I want you to come out on the field with me and we'll play catch and, and you know, I want I want people to know your story. And it was a Monday night game, I'll never forget, Monday night baseball, Chris Berman, ESPN, Barry brings this kid out. They're in San Diego, so it's the top it's the um bottom of the first. They come out on the field and Barry brings this kid out in the left field to play catch. Not a single media outlet reported it. Not a single media outlet interviewed the kid, you know, and and they they just couldn't let the world see that side of Barry Bonds because it does that's not what they were selling advertising. That's not what they were selling papers on. They only wanted to sh- so so. It's just a perfect example of why the media is meaningless. Um, but. That being said, they they can really mess you up and misportray you if you allow them to. And so what's his big mistake is is that he probably didn't play along in a way that, you know, put the media in a position where they would cover him fairly. 
happens. You know, he didn't, he, and I don't fault him for that. It's not his job wasn't to make the media's job easier. Any more than um, Emmett or any of the guys we work with, their job is not to make the media's job easier. It's not to give a great quote. It's not to spend extra time. It's not to sit for interviews. You know, it's to go out there and win games. And that that's how I would judge any athlete ultimately is what they did between the white lines and and how their teammates and coaches see them. Uh, you'd be hard-pressed to find any San Francisco Giants fans that don't think Barry Bonds is the greatest guy in the history of the world. And again, because they've gotten a chance to know him. But right back to the beginning, what we talked about is 99.9% of the people that know a celebrity know them through the media and through their branding. Right. And um, it does make a difference. It doesn't change who you are. You can be the greatest person in the world, but it does make a difference in how people see you. So as a young kid, it's something you definitely want to think about. Well, Marshawn Lynch kind of opened a lot of eyes that, that you know, the contractual and, and the collective bargaining, a lot of these different underlying rules now with the NFL and, and different sports franchises is – these guys have to open the door to the media and have to talk a little bit. So here you have Marshawn kind of sit in front of the camera and go, I got to do my minutes, but didn't really talk. And I actually like the way he managed that. And a lot of people are going, Hey, that guy's kind of a jerk. And it's like, no, he just doesn't want to communicate or put things out there. He just wants to focus on his craft and, and be a successful, you know, NFL running back. And a lot of people didn't get that. Yeah, and that, that and, and again, the media doesn't care what people right, get. Right, they right. They just want you to tune in. They just want you to buy Sports Illustrated or a magazine. <laughs> they don't. They honestly, they couldn't care less what you think, and they couldn't care less about giving you truth. They all they care about is whatever. I call it the national inquirization of the mm-hmm. general media because it didn't used to be like this. But sometime over the last twenty years. You know, the regular papers looked at the National Enquirer and said, wait a minute. They're, Trash. They're at the yeah. newspaper counter with a picture on the cover saying Justin Timberlake's pregnant. And they're selling 5 million copies of that. And I'm the New York Times, and I can't sell 300,000 copies. What the hell's going on? Right. And and so that that's what happened. And, and again, you know, it's the nature of business. But you, you and I won't be able to fix that problem today. No, and, and I appreciate your your time greatly. We're going to wrap up with a few questions here. You can kind of uh, wave off on them. Um, first one is, who's the most influential person in your personal life and then also in your business life? And it could be the same person. My, my, same person for both. You know, my grandfather was um, the most influential person both personally and, and in my business life. Um, you know, there's not a day that goes by that I don't think about something he told me or some saying he had. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, he would be the one, you know, there's one other guy in business, the founder of Upper Deck, this guy, Richard McWilliam, who really, um, probably got me on my way as an entrepreneur, uh, and taught me a lot of important lessons, but, but ultimately the core of who I am as a person and the core of who I am as a businessman, I owe to my grandfather. Now, who put the gum in the upper deck? Who picked that? Isn't that the one that had the gum? Because that gum was good. No, there's the one that doesn't. It's the only brand that never had gum. Oh, that, see, that's what helped them out because that gum and the other ones is horrible. And yeah, no, no, no gum. You know, they, they, <laughs> they, they really revolutionized uh, trading cards from when we were kids, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah, the gum worked my jaw. That's why I tell people I have a big jaw. No, that was no good. That was no good. 
um, adversity, what's a moment in your life that you looked at and said, man, I, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And, and how did you get through it? You know, there've been so many, I, uh, but it's I know. always the same. Um, you know, you, you're, when you seem like you're facing insurmountable odds and you, every, the whole world's against you, that perseverance, for me, it always just came in faith that I was right, um, that I had done the research, that I knew the numbers, that if we stayed the course, we'd be successful. And, and you know, there's no smooth path to success. The, the, so you just have to stick with your plan and know that you're right and don't get swayed by experts or external forces or market events. or mm-hmm. You can respond to things that happen, but ultimately um, you can't ever let a setback knock you off the rails. That's great advice. I just did an interview with uh, Brandon Williams from the Steelers, and he's an entrepreneur now. And One of the things that I had commented was you have to stay the course. You have to stay disciplined just like you did in sports. And you can't question yourself down to the, you know, the darkest hour sometimes. And you can have a bad week, but you don't have a bad month or bad year. And 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 I find myself visiting that that advice myself a lot because there's there's tough times in business. It's a different world. Um, people don't want to invest their dollars into things that aren't instant gratification. You know, the ethics in the sports management has changed dramatically. And we talked about it previously. You know, guys. Um, you know, best advice to those athletes listening right now, your high school, you're a college athlete and someone's slinging a Rolex or cash at you. They're actually trying to leverage you because they're going to use it against you somehow. It's not a good transaction. Um, and, and I'm sure you could elaborate on that forever because I know you're, you're big on the ethics part and you walk away from those expectations, which, which is honorable. Um, but it, it is, it's relevant out there. It, it's, it's a bad, bad infection of business practice. I see it all the time. I, I, I couldn't agree more, and you know that's uh, I mean that's uh, probably the the best explanation point on this conversation of two guys who had kind of a similar experience and think alike is exactly that. Um, you know, the business around you is always going to change, and you can you, you can respond to it certainly in some ways, and you mm-hmm. have to you have to evolve to be successful, but you never have to compromise your ethics to be successful. There's two ways to get to a goal. Um, there's always going to be an easy way to cut corners or cheat, or, and then there's always going to be a hard way to do it without having to compromise yourself. And, and you know, as hard as it is, if you always take the the hard way, if you always take the ethical way, you'll be able to enjoy your success a lot more. You'll be able to look yourself in the mirror, and, and it'll be longer lasting. I mean, you know, unethical people usually don't have a very long run no and that's 100 percent accurate jb bernstein everybody um if you want jb how would someone if they you know they're aspiring athlete or just socially what how would they connect with you or any websites that you want to publicly give out um you know basically the way the best way to always connect with me is uh uh, social networking, right, is is the link. So, <laughs> yeah. at JB Bernstein on uh, Twitter, and uh, JB underscore Million Dollar Arm for Instagram. Uh, pretty easy to find if you do Google search for me. It has all my my things on there, and um, you know I'm always interested in meeting people and hearing what's going on out there in the market. So, 
you know, people will send me stuff. They'll send me, you know, um, business ideas. They'll send me their thesis. They'll send me um, opinions. They'll ask for opinions. So I, I, I enjoy that interaction now that uh, I'm getting older and uh, yeah, I'm thinking more about my legacy than ever. So yeah, it's t- it's a balancing act because everybody. And, and even in my industry, they want to play D1 and they're actually D3 and there's nothing wrong with that. It's not knocking a guy or a girl's ability, but it's a balancing act of trying to balance your time, and your family life. And that's why I kind of asked for that permission to publicly link it because everybody wants to talk to a guy that helps guys get into college or in the pro ranks. And, you know, again, I appreciate your time and I value the connections. And, um, you know, we'll, I'm definitely I'm sure we'll talk again about this subject at some point. Sounds good. I look forward to it. All right, be safe, enjoy the family, and uh, get some rest. Thanks very much. You too. All right, thanks. Thanks for tuning in to the Athletic Scholarship Corporation Radio Network. Heard worldwide on www.athleticscholarshipcorp.com. Be sure to tune in next week for more college recruiting help, training advice, motivation, and more from pro athletes, coaches, celebrities, and entrepreneurs worldwide.